Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. The year with too much brown face but the right amount of chest hair, 1956. Everybody, welcome to Gilda Films Podcast. It is I, Christian, as always. We're here to present yet another episode of Which Picture Was Best. The year we are focusing on is 1956. And as always, here is my esteemed co-host, the wonderful Brett. Hello, Brett. Hello. Thank you for the introduction. And joining us once again, last heard them on our, uh, what was that? Our Oscar predictions episode. Welcome back, Zay. Hello, everyone. I'm not dead yet. And the only reason Zay says that is because what a year this week has been. <laughs> mm. we, are re- we are recording this in the midst of a literal pandemic worldwide. But damn it, we watched these movies. We're here and we're going to talk about them now to get away from the stress of everything. Yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty fortunate that in case you all haven't noticed already, we record all of our podcasts remotely from our own locations. So this luckily didn't affect the podcast at all. But um, obviously, hopefully all of you are going out as little as possible, um, you know, whatever it might be for food, work, whatever, um, and staying safe out there. So this podcast, great opportunity to sit indoors in your home and listen to us talk about movies. But yes, we have the year 1956 to talk about. Quite a year, a year, as we mentioned. Um, Zay came up with our great intro, the year with too much brown face, the right amount of chest hair, and very overlong movies. Oof. Very much so. So briefly going over the Oscars of 1956, they were held on March 27th, 1957. Christian, you mentioned here they were sponsored by Oldsmobile. Yeah, so I watched like the intro to this today and literally it's like sponsored by Oldsmobile and then they started listing off all their cars and the YouTube page, which is really fun, you should all watch it, literally has in its whole set a like commercial introduction for like an Oldsmobile car that goes on for a good three minutes. So wow. they, yeah, they really pushed that that year. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know, just a fun fact. Yeah, I mean, today they would be probably be sponsored by like Apple or Disney and they would buy their own Best Picture. So, but in 1956, Best Picture went to Around the World in 80 Days. Best Director went to George Stevens for Giants, actress to Ingrid Bergman for Anastasia, actor for Yul Brynner for The King and I, supporting actress for Dorth- to Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind, and supporting actor to Anthony Quinn for Lust for Life, uh, which was unique because... Um, for the first time since the supporting categories were introduced, this is the only time, or sorry, the first time that um, all four acting wins, picture and director, all went to different movies. And so you mentioned here the last time was in 2013. So, which is the one we did the, for the 2012 movies. Yes, right. 
That's awesome. Um, so the most wins around the world in 80 days and the King and I both had five, but Giant had the most nominations with 10. Christian, you have some other fun facts here that you looked up. Yes. Uh, so this is the first ceremony where all five of the uh, Best Picture nominees were all in color. Um, the first Oscar telecast to be filmed for later broadcast. I'm pretty sure that they were already on TV at this point, but that meant, as I looked up, if certain stations didn't want to show this live, they filmed it so that they could show it like at a later time, just because. Um, again, like Brett said, the supporting categories plus actor, actress, picture and director all went to different movies. And this is the most interesting one. This is the last time the Oscars were held on both coasts, Los Angeles and New York, because they used to do that for whatever reason. And it was really interesting watching that some of the winners would be announced in New York, but they would be in Los Angeles to accept it. So that's really interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And it's like Jerry Lewis was the host, but Celeste Holm was the New York host. Oh. So, yeah. And then they were like, you know what? Screw it. We're just, we'll just do LA. That's it. Nice. Good decision. Good decision. Yeah. All right. So we're going to jump right in. We have five Best Picture nominees, Friendly Persuasion, Giant, The King and I, The Ten Commandments, and Around the World in 80 Days. So our first film up, first Best Picture nominee is Friendly Persuasion, directed by William Wyler. So this is a story of a Quaker family um, who are living in the midst of the American Civil War. And so part of the conflict here is that um, part of their beliefs is that they have a very pacifist attitude and belief system, um, very religious family led by Gary Cooper, lead role as a father. Um, and this kind of comes to conflict when their son, who's played by Anthony Perkins, um, most well known for being, playing Norman Bates, um, he sees a cause in joining up in the army and fighting for the Union um, as the Confederate troops are advancing. Because the war is threatening their typical home lives and the lives of the town that they live in, they kind of have to face this conflict of, is it okay to fight and give up their pacifist beliefs, or is that something that they need to hold on to? And so probably I would say typically the most forgotten film of these nominees. It was honestly the only one I hadn't heard of, so I had obviously not seen it before. I didn't think it was bad per se. I didn't think it was terribly good. I found it pretty forgettable. Um, what do you all think? Oh, for sure. Like, I think it was like the first one I watched for this pod. And uh, yeah, it's definitely no witness. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know Quakers and Amish people are different. <laughs> But I kind of wish it took the role that Witness did, because at least Witness had a little bit of action romance in there. Yeah. This had almost, it had a good goose. There's a very good goose <laughs> representation in this film. Um, and, a wonderful, and a wonderful performance from Marjorie Maine. It's like very brief, but I love my character actress, Marjorie Maine. Yeah. Hope you all know who that is. Yes. I agree. She's a highlight. Jeez. Um, but no, I don't know. 
Quaker, I was assuming this would be the story of how Quaker Oats came to be. (laughs) And we lost the Quaker audience. (laughs) No, that was our biggest (laughs) part of our listenership. But no, no, this is a very forgettable film. I mean, looking at the other nominees, this is, and there are such epic nominees in terms of their scope and their scale. This is pretty laid back. I mean, it's all pretty much on a farm in the countryside, like Brett said, Civil War era. I was under the impression the plot was gonna be like the family conflict. But for the first hour, it's like, guess how the family lives? We're gonna tell you. No, it's the first hour and a half. There's nothing until that final like 15 minutes. Yeah, and then like the guy comes home and Anthony Perkins is like, what's war like? I wanna go to war. And it's like, oh, okay, wait, this movie's almost done. Yeah. See, this is one of those other Harry Chest movies because in that first 90 minutes, Anthony Perkins' little friend takes a shirt off and I'm like, oh, hello. And then he's gone again. And I'm like, I guess I got nothing oh. going for me until the goose comes back. Uh, did Gary Cooper not suffice? Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. I... What stuck out to me most about this movie is they try to keep it back to like that old dialogue, especially used by the Quakers. The amount of times they use thee and thy in this movie just drove me up a wall. Cause like I've seen movies where that works, like the witch that works, you know, here it's just like, and they're aware of it too. Forced. It was very forced. Like it was like the actors at times didn't even know what to do with it, but. Yeah. Um, to, this like, is so like, we have to realize this is at the height of what, like the Hollywood code too, where this is such a grounded family film that people are going to rush to it and be like, yeah, this is perfect with the family. Let's watch another family because, you know, our family life sucks, I guess. True. At the same time, and to go back to your point about the scope of this film in comparison to the others, this was the only one of the nominees for Best Picture that didn't get the top 10 box office for that year that I discovered. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, like, it, it's it's not as wide in scope in the others, and it's not an epic like the others are, and yet it's still two hours and 17 minutes. And so it, it's, it's still too long of a movie. Like, it doesn't have to be that long. If it, was not, a, if it was a nice 88 minutes, what a nice little, like, family drama could have been. Sure, yeah. I don't know. I think there's something good buried in here about this idea of this conflict like you're mentioning christian like their pacifist attitude and how does the american civil war affect that but it just spends too much time with this like slice of life quaker family narrative that it rolls with that by the time we finally get there it's like i'm just ready for this to be over to be honest like i say it's not bad but I think with the whole family conflict of like, should we let this kid go to war even though we don't really believe in that? It would have been better made probably during like the Vietnam era. That would have been cool. I think if it was made during that time, it probably blown off, but then come years later, people would be like, you know what, this movie, it had a big message to say, especially on the home front, but set civil war, but made during Vietnam era. But I mean, this time we have like the end of the Korean war like four years before this so yeah i disagree i think it would be just as boring you know who wouldn't disagree with you though 
personal hero of yours, Mr. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Love Mr. Reagan. Because, fun fact, as I have written in the notes, this is the favorite film of one Mr. Ronnie Reagan. That's just wild to me. He loved it so much that I've read. He sent a copy to Soviet premier Mikhail Gorbachev saying, to view the film as symbolic of the needs to fight. Did I read that right? Yeah. yeah. To find an alternative to war as means of resolving difference between peoples. To which Mikhail Gorbachev was like, what? What? <laughs> this movie sucks. It's like, it's like the Winston Churchill walking out on FDR when they watched Wilson. <laughs> it's like, do I care about this movie, Ronald? Oh, God. I just can't imagine this being someone's favorite movie. Right, like of all the movies out there. Friendly Persuasion. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. How about the acting? I thought Anthony Perkins is pretty good here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, I thought Gary Cooper was good. I mean, he wasn't like Oscar worthy, but. He feels very Gary Cooper to me. Yeah, it's very, very Gary Cooper. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I've seen very few films of him, but. He, he has a short range, I guess. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Anthony Perkins won like best new star at the Globes this year for this too. Oh, interesting. So. Samantha the Goose was very good goose acting. It's true. Oh, that damn goose. Samantha the Goose and Marjorie Maine are the MVPs. I have to say, like, I, I hate to like bash on one particular actor or actress, but um, Phyllis Love who plays Maddie, like one of the daughters, is like so bad in this movie. <laughs> I went to IMDb and like looked her up and she doesn't even have a picture. And so I'm like, <laughs> oh, that makes sense. That, that was probably like one of her few film roles because people realize how awful she was in this movie. But yeah, I mean, acting not terribly memorable. It's not a really well shot movie. I mean, it's colorful at times, but like I say, it's not terrible but there's just not a whole lot here this ending is pretty unsatisfying in my opinion but what the weird thing is we're talking about a william wyler movie and his movies yeah. tend to be so so good and beautiful Most, right because yeah. he's coming off of the 40s where he wins for mrs miniver and one of the like arguably best american films ever made the best years of our lives like right like you can make a family film but you got to find the right source material yeah. But anyway, this was nominated for six Oscars, Best Picture. Wyler did get a director nom, supporting actor for Anthony Perkins. Uh, the song, Friendly Persuasion, The I Love. Adapted screenplay, um, interesting note on that. And sound recording. Um, really interesting that it won the Palme d'Or at, at Cannes Film Festival. That's so weird. That's shocking. Not just because of the quality, it just doesn't seem like a type of film to win Palm d'Or. I don't know. Um, yeah, you have written here, screenwriter Michael Wilson wrote the first draft in 1946, but he refused to give names in the HUAC hearings. Um, and so the WGA decided to grant writing credit to him despite Weiler wanting Robert Weiler and Jessamine West to have credit. Um, allied artists left Wilson's name off anyway because they feared conservative groups would picket the film. So, Al so Wilson sued Allied. So, 
Um, we got a case of a blacklisted screenwriter here, which is kind of cool, I guess. Blacklisted screenwriter taking revenge. Yeah. Yeah, and you also say here, Gary Cooper developed a paternal relationship with Anthony Perkins, going so far as to set Perkins and his daughter up on dates. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. But yeah, um, friendly persuasion. Forgettable, not terrible, not like one star movie per se. But I gave it two. Yeah. I gave it like two or two and a half. So I think I gave it. I think I gave it two. I don't remember now. <laughs> oh, well, I found my notes. One one last thing. When he puts the when the Gary Cooper puts the garters on his arms, I did find that funny. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Now and then, then I was like, what if we just get a slapstick movie about Quakers? <laughs> <laughs> I would watch. We already did get a slapstick movie about Quakers. It was called the Nixon administration. Ooh. I'm pretty sure Nixon was a Quaker. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that was him. So that joke better have stuck with some people out there. <laughs> we just lost the Nixon audience. Oh no, we have like two left. I was going to say, yeah, if that. Okay. Anything else on Friendly Persuasion? Not it a, is movie. It is movie. That says it all. All right. Zay, would you like to go ahead and introduce our next nominee? I sure would. Our next film is Giant, directed by George Stevens, which is an epic, sprawling family drama about a man and his wife and his children, all having a farm raising cattle, going through many years and many years of just running their little business. <laughs> and they accidentally give some property to James Dean because Rock Hudson, who is the patriarch of the family, his sister dies and gives him, gives James Dean some of the land in her will. And then he finds a bunch of oil on it. And then he becomes an oil tycoon. And there's just a lot of tension there. And yeah, giant. It's a really long movie where not a whole lot happens, but some stuff happens. It just felt like a long book that I was told to read in high school. Mm. You read the book? No, it's a, I said it felt. Oh, hey, I don't know. I almost read the book once. <laughs> Yeah, uh, three hours and 21 minutes, this movie. But it goes by fast. I mean, I, I, I do think it goes by fast, but I think at some point, it, it loses its epic scale at some point and starts to get silly. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I think that's kind of how I felt. Like, at the beginning, I felt like the first hour and a half, first half of it went by pretty fast. And I don't know if it went by fast after that, but it, it didn't feel overly boring to me per se i think it is too long still like i don't think it needs to be three hours and 21 minutes to kind of get this story across um yeah i did enjoy its epic scale you know i mean i it definitely does come across as an epic especially the beginning i was getting almost like 
Gone with the Wind-esque vibes in the beginning of the film as it was kind of setting it up and they live in this big mansion, basically. Um, but yeah, how good is James Dean here, though? Like, uh, That's the method acting in him. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's so good. And I really wish, and I think I told you this, Brad, but I don't want him in lead acting for this because if he would have went supporting, because he's like a supporting character in this, he most likely would have won. Plus, you have the advantage of being dead. Right. True. I mean, sad, but true. Yeah, I mean, he was, what, 23, 24 when he filmed this movie? And then, like, right after it finished filming, he gets in a car accident and dies at age 24. And so never sees the release of the film. Obviously, is not at the Oscars. And it would have been a really cool win. And it would have been well-deserved for Best Supporting Actor. Um, Because something about this movie is... Zay mentioned it takes place over a really long period of time and instead of you know doing the old technique of making older actors play younger characters they take the younger characters and make them look older as the film progresses look yeah that's what drove me fucking insane I'm like you didn't make them look older you gave them gray hair gray hair Well, I mean I read through like the IMDb, IMDb facts that James Dean he was like, you don't get old through makeup. You get old by a few wrinkles. Like, mm. <laughs> there you there go. The wrinkles, <laughs> though. <laughs> the method. <laughs> I mean, I, I think James Dean does look a little older, because, but it's most because he looks so young anyway. And like, I mean, it's the performance. Like, he performs it well. Like, he was so definitely good. the most convincing. Seeing Liz yeah. Taylor in that gray hair, I was like, girl. Come on. Yeah, Liz Taylor, you could tell she probably had in, but she's like, I want to look beautiful and regal when I'm old. And then flash forward to 2000s when she is old in like a wheelchair because she can't walk. And she's like, marriage? No! <laughs> yeah, I definitely think the film is at its best at the beginning because there's like family tension mm-hmm. and all that. Like... Do I agree with this shit? No. Like, why is Liz Taylor apologizing to him for being a fucking dick? Um, but um, once it gets to Thanksgiving, I'm just like, is this a comedy? Did we just turn into a comedy? Because I was laughing so hard. Because <laughs> she was like, like there, she was talking about the dad, and they were, and they were crying and. No, the fucking turkey when they kill yeah. the turkey. What's the name of the turkey? I can't remember its name. I forgot. They're they're bawling about the turkey. And then they're like, um, your father wouldn't want you to cry. Oh, his father coming? No. Just starts crying even louder. <laughs> interesting family movie compared to the last family movie. It just feels yeah. like it got very unfocused real fast. You know what the weirdest thing is? It's like, I know it's it's subtle throughout the whole movie, but then in the last bit at the diner scene, we suddenly have like, oh, all of, what's his name? Like Brick? Is his name Brick, Rocks Hudson's character? Um, Bick. Bick, same thing. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> it all comes like, oh, he's racist, but it's like this whole time, you know what? I can change. That that was weird too. It's suddenly like it's subtle, it's subtle, and then let's give you this whole scene that in an instant he ain't racist anymore. Yeah. And that's the thing, like I I didn't I wasn't expecting this movie to be to try to be a race commentary 
And so when it did do that, I was kind of surprised. Like, I didn't even know this is what this was about. And obviously it's not exactly in depth or a great race commentary, but yeah. And the ending scene too, like with their, their two grandchildren. Um, it's kind of hard to find a, a structured, not structured, like a solid plot to this movie because it goes from like the rich oil of it all, how James Dean gets rich to like the racism thing, to family domestic issues. There's like a bajillion things happening in all of this. And it's such a small family. It's like Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, the kids. That's it. Because Mercedes McCambridge, she's gone in like the first 10 minutes she's introduced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Last thing too, like I think it's interesting in the beginning when you've got the conflict between Bit and Jet, who's played James Dean's character, and then it's kind of interesting at the end when they kind of have, they encounter each other again at Jet's big celebration. And so it's almost like those are the two points of the film that are really we're centering on. And like the middle part is like thrown in because those two take place in such very different time periods. And so like we got to show all this stuff to show how we got there when it's really not that interesting at all the time. But I don't know. It's a Western. I think it's good. I don't think it's great. Um, you know, George Stevens, best director, interesting choice. I can see why, I guess. But his second, too, in only a few years. Yeah. The other one being for a place in the sun, also with Elizabeth Taylor. Also interesting because it was the film's only win. And so, one best director, and then that was it. And so. Uh, but yeah, it was, again, one Best Director. It was nominated for nine other Oscars. Um, obviously, Best Picture, Best Actor, both James Dean and Rock Hudson, like we mentioned, some category fraud there for Dean. Um, what's her first name? Mercedes? Mercedes McCambridge. How dare you? For supporting <laughs> actress. Like I said, she's gone in 10 minutes. Adaptive screenplay, art direction for color film, um, costume designs for film and color, film editing, and score. Highest grossing Warner Brothers film until The Exorcists. Interesting, all starring Mercedes McCambridge. And yeah, um, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, lifelong friends as a result of the production. So it was actually filmed in Texas, which is where this takes place. I mean, it is a Western. So that house, The house is really nice, I must say. Yeah, I mean, I thought the production design on the house was good. I like when you first see it, and it's literally the house amongst nothing. Right. <laughs> Welcome to Texas. Read the second to last fun fact. Read the second to last one. <laughs> <laughs> Rumor has it there was a lot of sexual tension between the three leads. Take it as you will. I'll all right. Take, I'll take all three as you will. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> And I found this interesting too. Uh, 100 Years, 100 Movies from the AFI, their 1997 edition at number 82 on that list, which I found kind of surprising, to be honest, but not on the 2007 edition. Yeah. Giant, epic in scale, epic in runtime. <laughs> epic in themes. Epic in themes, true. Capitalism, greed, family, racism, misogyny, 
you name it, you got it. It's also a musical. It's a small bet about animal cruelty. Yep. There you go. This movie has everything. <laughs> yeah. Including its moments. It has some great moments. It does have its moments. Also, I will say a really great performance from a young Dennis Hopper. Yes. I was surprised when he showed up on screen. Yeah, I really liked him in this. Yeah, I did too. I think like when he showed up on screen, I'm like, oh my God, that's Dennis Hopper. That's cool. So, all right. Christian, you got our next one. Okay. The power and the spirit of Rogers and Hammerstein have worked through me for this because I wrote a song. (laughs) Okay. Y'all are just like, oh, fuck. Here we go. It's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that on Broadway 1950s, the king and I was hot. But on film, it's just amusing and it hasn't aged very well. Do forgive us if you love it. But to us, we have to say, it's I. <laughs> that was a very Clap. memorable song. Very Clap memorable. Thank you. Um, our next film is The King and I, directed by Walter Lang. It tells the story of Anna Leon Owens, played by Deborah Carr. And she travels to Siam, which is now I, Thailand? Yeah. yeah, Thailand. Um, to educate the king of Siam's children, the king played by Yul Brenner, recreating his most famous role from Broadway. And they learn to literally get to know one another. It's a very conflicted viewpoints from both of them. He thinks his ways of life. She's like, well, you should think of this Western way. It's pretty cool. Tries to open him up to all this through song and dance because it is a musical because we are in like the golden age of musicals right now. Uh, like I said, it hasn't aged quite well because it's not historically accurate in the slightest. It's very pretty to look at, but yeah, that's the king and I. A lot of, a lot of conflict between Anna and the king. So I grew up loving it because I also grew up on the animated version of this movie. But as time goes on, I'm like, it's yeah, again, it's fine. It's not my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein show. Uh, I don't really know what it would be now. Probably the sound of music, but yeah, yeah, y'all. Um, I I thought yeah, I, I think it's memorable for the technical aspects. I mean, the colors are awesome. The costumes are great. The production design is really really good, and so that's that's what comes to mind for me when I think about it. Um. But yeah, I, I agree. You know, it, it was fine. I, I didn't particularly like the movie. I thought the songs were, the songs were fine. They were fine. The the <laughs> one that you keep singing to me has grown on me over time. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, so the one that the getting to know you one. Yeah, there that one. Go. It has a name. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know the name of the other one, but the other one that the king sings about like knowledge and like how we get knowledge and whatnot. I didn't like the song per se. I mean, I, it was fine, but like the, the theme behind that song was a little bit interesting. And so, yeah. Listen, if oh, someone God. would have told me that the Uncle Tom's Cabin <laughs> was going to play such a big part in this movie, I don't think I would have believed them. <laughs> Wait, did you not know that? Absolutely no idea. 
running Uncle Thomas. And I'm like, out of every classic piece of literature, that's the one? Yeah. And, oh my God. But yeah, um, beautiful gowns. Very beautiful gowns. Aretha? <laughs> um, yeah, just the scene and amount of brown face in this film as well was just... Oof. Don't get me wrong, I could see why people love this movie so much, especially with the iconic Shall We Dance scene, which is like the only thing I knew from the movie, of them, which is iconic with her and her dress and them just like going around the room. But after watching the movie that I thought I'd like more than I actually did, um, yeah, it's, it's a no for me, dog. <laughs> wow. Speaking of brown face, like Yul Brynner had himself a year with the brown face this year. Not just this film, but another one we'll come to. Um, thoughts on Yul Brynner in this movie, because he did win Best Actor for it. Uh, there can be I... nobody else to play this part. I don't think the man can sing. I just don't think he's very good, if you I'm think honest. I don't think that's singing though. I think it's like talk singing. Then why why is it a musical? <laughs> because she gets to sing. <laughs> Not everyone in a musical has to sing. Like he doesn't sing much in it either. I don't know. I mean, obviously, like Yul Brynner, this was his role. He played it on Broadway, won what how many Tonys for it? You, you you can only really win at one Tony. <laughs> I, you, you, I swear you texted me and said he, you won two Tonys for the role, so I didn't know if they did like I mean, a different it, version. It was like one win Tony and one, hey, you've been doing this a little bit. You, here's an honorary thing. Yeah, exactly. So two. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like that, the honorary one was referencing this role. And so I just don't think he's very good. I, I don't know. I When I was like listing best actor wins, he was like, very much near the bottom for me. In fact, I, I saw him in three roles this year, this, the Ten Commandments, and Anastasia, and I thought this was by far the worst of the three. But could you have seen anybody else? Could you have seen Mickey Rooney? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate the man, but that's definitely a version I'd want to see now. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think he's just, I mean, I can understand that he's fine in this movie, but he's like the... I mean, now, because of everything, the history of this role, he is the epitome of this performance. Like, yeah. He, he, I've read that he embodied this role so much. And I even wrote down, he played this for a reported 4,625 performances on stage worldwide. So much so that Carol Channing pretty much did the same thing for Hello, Dolly. But he was like, Carol, don't tell anybody you did that because it'll fuck up my record. <laughs> Like, he was obsessed with this role. It's sad, but... I mean, it's kind of like Vin Diesel in playing the guy in the Fast and Furious series. Like, who else could play that role? Vin Diesel cares about it so much. And yet, like, it's, it's not good. <laughs> well, there's our answer. Carol Channing would be a better king. <laughs> well, shall we go. dance? <laughs> <laughs> what is <this> etc.? <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. There's Yul Brynner. There's also Deborah Kerr, who I thought uh, was definitely the better of the two. Deborah Carr. Carr, sorry. Deborah Carr. 
Why is it stop? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought she was fine. I thought she was good. Um, I like she the play within the movie. She doesn't really sing in this. No, I mean... Well, it's Marnie Nixon singing for her. Oh, okay, so why didn't they get someone to sing for the fucking king? So I'm pretty sure it's Maureen O'Hara, the one uh, in a couple of John Ford's movies. Who they wanted in this movie because she's a classically trained singer. And then Richard Rogers, who wrote like the music to this, was like, mm, she's been in a couple of movies where she's a pirate. I don't want a pirate in my movie. <laughs> <laughs> or Marino, Marino Harrow, Marino Sullivan. They both Marino. I don't know. Interesting. But also have in the little fact that the small house of Uncle Thomas, which they absolutely loved in this, <laughs> is the only American theatrical version of Uncle Tom's Cabin made in the sound era. That's for the best. Yeah. I mean, that's so weird. <laughs> and it's so weird, too, that she's like a British woman. And of all the books that Britain has to offer, she's like, oh, children. Let's read this book about slavery. And then they were like, and she was talking to the king, like, you know, you're just like Abraham Lincoln. And I'm like, what are we doing here? What is going on? <laughs> She's trying to please the man. She is the Kellyanne Conway of the king and I. <laughs> God damn. Also, Rita Moreno is in this movie. That's true. Mm. Also in brown face. Of course. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's the same thing. It's like clash of cultures, belief versus knowledge. Like there's some interesting themes here, but I don't know. It's, it's designed to entertain, I guess. But And I wanted to say as much as I like the costumes, this has to be one of the worst set decorations I've ever seen. I can't Ooh. tell where they are. It doesn't feel like a real place and they're never going anywhere. Interesting. I, I don't like, I did not like it. I felt like they were on a spaceship the whole fucking time. <laughs> They're in the palace. I'm like defending this, even though I think it's okay. That's so <laughs> I mean, someone has to, because we didn't grow up on this movie. So yeah, true. throwing us in like that, we're not going to like it, I don't think. Literally, I watched the, there's the animated version of this that I grew up on. And I'm going to spoil this movie for anybody out there, but you've had 50 some years. But in this movie, the king dies. How does he die? of a broken heart because Anna's like, I can't take your fucker, fuckery anymore. I'm leaving. <laughs> and he's like, I failed. I'm dying. In the animated one, he lives. So imagine my surprise when I watched this as like a teenager, <laughs> he dies. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't end with them being like, shall we dance? And it dances into happiness. No, it's like, guys. <laughs> Does the animated one feature Uncle Tom's Cabin? I don't remember. But there is a part where he sings a puzzlement and an evil wizard tries to kill him. That sounds much more interesting. That's I interesting. think I'll watch that version. And then when they sing Getting to Know You, Anna actually takes the kids out onto the city streets and stuff. And there's a monkey. <laughs> Does the monkey talk? <laughs> no, but he's a side character monkey, so he has role. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And lest we forget, I'm sorry, I'm bringing up all this info about the king and I. Go for it. <laughs> Rex Harrison played the king in the live action non-musical version that came in like the 40s. Okay, again, king of Siam, who's like 
from Thailand, so Thai. And then we have Jodie Foster playing Anna in a 90s version of this non-musical. And then how can we forget the classic episode of the Golden Girls where Rose is like, my high school teacher said I would be perfect for the king and I. So stupid here shaves her head and doesn't get the part. <laughs> oh, geez. And you're all just well, like, can we move on from the king and I? <laughs> well, I just want to apologize to the the mass group of Yul Brynner fans. Hopefully you haven't quit on us yet on this podcast. We've already lost, what, uh, Quakers, Yul Brynner fans. Yeah, sorry. Nixon so, fans. We're, we're down to uh, one. Nixon, Nixon voters. Yeah. <laughs> Christian, we, do you... Oh. So, do you want to talk about what it won and what it yes. was? I was about to, yes, I was about to say it. Okay, so like Brett said at the very beginning, this tied with the most wins at five. This one for Best Actor, Yul Brynner, Best Art Direction Color, <laughs> uh, Best Costume Design Color, Best Sound, and Best Score of a Musical Picture. And it was nominated for four more things, Best Picture, Director for Walter Lang, Actress for Deborah Carr, and Cinematography Color. Made about $8 million at the box office, and AFI 100 Passions, number 31, because I guess there's romance. Uh, 100 Musicals, the number 11 best musical, and number 54 best song for Shall We Dance, which is iconic. There must be a lot of heterosexuals voting on that list. <laughs> she literally kills him. <laughs> that's, so that's something a straight man would fucking do, too. I don't... It was clear she never was interested in him. Why would she, fucking man baby? Yep. I mean, he already has, like, a multitude of wives. And yet she's sh so shaken up when he dies at the end. It's like, okay. But yeah, The King and I, any other thoughts or fun facts? Wow, read me, I guess. <laughs> um, if you go to because we're all at home if you go to broadway hd you can see a filmed version of this from 2015 that was filmed on stage and it's much much better all right makes sense okay moving on zay i believe you have our next movie next up is the ten commandments and you have the catholic in the room so let's hear this <laughs> directed by cecil b demille um if you want the summary of this, just go watch The Prince of Egypt. But take out the musical numbers. Or the book of Exodus in the Bible. Oh, my guess is that too. <laughs> so basically, the film is more about the life of Moses. How he's a little baby. It's taken to... Not taken, but he like goes down the river and finds his way to the... Egyptian royalties and is taken in, is raised as a son. And then God talks to him. And then he's like, hey, dad, this shit's not cool. And then his dad's like, well, you're not cool, son. And then he has to leave. And the dad dies. And then his brother takes over and is like, hey, bro, you got to let my people go. And he's like, I don't know about all that. And so then there's some, there's some, uh, plagues and uh they eventually he let he lets his people go and he splits the red sea wide open and then they're in paradise 
And then he's like, hey, hey, y'all, this is not shit. I got to make some Ten Commandments. And then he comes out with the Ten Commandments. And then they're like, there we go. Jewish people never have to worry about anything ever again. Christian is just losing it here. With this. <laughs> I have never seen him laugh this hard before. Or maybe he's just he's just feeling the power of Christ right now and gone <laughs> <laughs> into tears. Oh my god. Discuss. <laughs> Somebody who grew up with this story, that was like actually a fairly accurate description. <laughs> I grew up with it. I had to go to Sunday school. Oh thanks. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very traumatized. <laughs> didn't you see my tweet earlier? No, but did you but did you both have to grow up with this for 13 straight years? No. No. However, yeah. at, my, at my at my youth pastor, he brought his son in one day and he had his son show him his nunchuck skills to us and he told us <laughs> and he like used it as an example of God using his body to like perform these feats. <laughs> oh my so that's God. what my my youth um, Sunday school was all about. Oh God! Anyway, so this, this is, is amazing. <laughs> I have derailed everything. Nunchuck anyway, skills. This is my favorite of all the nominees. Like a legitimately, I would say, good slash great movie. Um, for many years, I have been meaning to watch it because I knew it was like a good movie and a lot of people like knew about it and liked it, but I just never got around to it until doing this podcast. Um, but yeah, I really liked the story. It was like super well paced for its length. Mm-hmm. And as many um, race inaccuracies aside, pretty well acted and nice scope to the film. Yeah. Yeah, and again, um, epics this year. This one, three hours and 40 minutes long. This is the epic of epics. Yeah. Uh, I I agree. Like, I I went in expecting to straight up dislike this movie. It's just, it, you know, it didn't really appeal to me. And I saw how long it was and Charlton Heston playing Moses. And I was like, okay, here we go. Yeah, really good. Like, really good movie like you said well paced really wonderful scenery throughout the film um and really it it makes this story very interesting with the way it tells it um and the way we see moses go on this journey throughout the entirety of the movie and so i was very um i was pleasantly surprised by it and i agree it's the best of the nominees this year uh, I grew up watching this once in school, as I've been saying. The story, of course, all my life. But no, this was during the year where I first discovered like classic movies. We watched it. And ironically enough, this is going to be the interesting story. This was coming up near Easter when we watched it because that's traditionally when everybody watches it when it's on TV during Easter. I missed the last half of this movie because we went out of town and that day that we were out of town was like the weekend of the Oscars, my first ever Academy Awards. Mm. 
I will always remember that. So from 2004 until I think the last time I saw this was 2013, I had never seen the ending of this movie. Interesting. Yeah. No, it is good. I always thought like it's too overlong and stuff, but watching it, like you said, the pacing is very good in this. It's entertaining. It's interesting. Charlton Heston is... We're going to lose a Charlton Heston group, but he's a bad actor. I don't like him. He is one, he's one note in everything. Ben-Hur, this, Planet of the Apes, everything I've seen of him, he's the same fucking character. Okay. Yeah. But that Everybody, chest hair gets me in every time. <laughs> he looks really good in this movie. I, compared to Ben-Hur, which is only like four years later, he looks really good in this. You look good, Heston. But yeah, um, the parting of the Red Sea is amazing. That's such an amazing shot. Yeah. It's goofy that the women are like cowering in fear of what's happening. That's like my favorite scene. The women cowering in fear before he parts it. Um, but yeah, this is a big movie. Very big. Um, yeah, got Charles Heston, Yul Brenner once again playing Ramses, um, who is, I think, pretty good in this role. Um, and Baxter, who we've talked about before, shows up in this movie. Edward G. Robinson. And so pretty... Uh, Vincent Price. And so you got a pretty love, good cast here. Life. There you go. He should have been in all these epics, I think. Just a random character who comes in for a couple scenes. Plus, there's a Golden Girls joke in this because Sophia once asked, what the hell is Edward G. Robinson doing in the Ten Commandments? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I... And Zay, I think you might have mentioned this in your review of it, but after Moses parts the Red Sea, like the movie after that is kind of like, like that feels like a grand finale. And so everything that happens after that, I found interesting, but I was like, okay, you can kind of like end now. Mm -hmm. And so, It got very preachy at that point. Yeah. And I think they should have edited it to either the beginning of the film is him getting the Ten Commandments and the rest is like a flashback sort of thing. Or just fast forward right past the after the parting of the sea to be him getting the Ten Commandments. I think calling the film the Ten Commandments is what hurts the movie at most. Mm. Because you're it expecting a story Moses. about... What? It should have just been called Moses. Or yeah. something like that. Because yeah. for the longest time, I didn't know the movie was about Moses' life. I thought it was about that part after the Red Sea where he's like coming up with the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And I know, spoiling this one, but I know for runtime, because obviously it's an animated movie, but yes, The Prince of Egypt pretty much is a remake of this, but that ends right at the end of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. And that's like the perfect ending because you see him coming with the Ten Commandments. Like you don't see them getting made. And I know they're made in this because you got to have the special effects because it's pretty cool. And you got to have the, the quote orgy sequence. <laughs> <laughs> got to make the, the Bible movie sexy. <laughs> Could you imagine like Cecil B. DeMille filming that? And he's almost 70, 80, whatever. Like... Like, all right, everybody, we're orging now. <laughs> Did you ever watch this, his silent version of this? No, and I want to. Yeah. Is it still like, it's not a lost film, is it? No, because no. the newest release of The Ten Commandments, which just came out last week on Blu-ray, features that. Oh. 
And it's both, it's weird because as I've read, it's both the story of Moses and the story of a bunch of like juveniles breaking the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I did hear that story because that's what people are stocking up on at Walmart right now. <laughs> Ten Commandment Blu-rays. <laughs> hey, Artist not? says I... you can only buy one at a time right now, though. <laughs> So Christian, you've seen this, what, two or three times you said, uh, two times in full. Two times in full one. So like two and a half. Yeah. Zay, did you mention, was this a repeat watch or? This is my first time watching it. First time. Okay. Same. Yeah. I was definitely not one who watched this on April when it aired on, when it airs on cable every year. I imagine a lot of people will be watching it on cable this year. They'll probably have record numbers this year. Last so. year, I found out, because if you go to the Wikipedia page, it shows you how many people watch it. Last year was 4.9 million people. Gosh. That's a Literally lot. Literally nothing else to do. April. I'm assuming they're going to show it April 11th, which is my birthday. There'll be a lot of people watching. Yeah. What else are they going to be doing? With coloring Easter eggs as well. No, the Pope, the Pope said, Jesus ain't coming back this year. <laughs> Well, Y'all gonna have to wait. He said, "Go ahead and watch this movie, even though the Pope's Italian." <laughs> 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 oh my God! I just assume the Pope is always Italian. <laughs> You're right, oh. and if he isn't, he has to learn how to be. <laughs> Zay, since you introduced this, do you want to go over what it won, what it was nominated for, and everything? I sure can. Once I scroll down to the notes. So it won one Oscar for best effects, but it was nominated for six others for best picture, cinematography, color, art direction, color, costume design, color, sound, and editing. I honestly think it's very sad that Cecil B. DeMille did not get a nomination. Did he die before the ceremony or? No, he died like a couple, this is his last movie. He died like a couple years after. Okay. But I have in the notes that he had a fucking heart attack during the making of this. How do you not nominate him after that? Wow. Right? I mean, it's such a good movie too. It's like, this is his magnum opus. Leonardo DiCaprio gets an Oscar for eating bison in a shitty movie, (laughs) but Cecil B. DeMille doesn't get an Oscar for a heart attack? All right. So it made $34.2 million at the box office, which is a shit ton for the time. Um, in 1961, an article Variety is beating Gone with the Wind. That's what I found. I don't know. I just wrote it. At least 14,000 extras and 15,000 animals used. All using craft services. <laughs> <laughs> the parting of the Red Sea was used by large tanks that were flooded and shown in reverse. Hmm. And it was the highest grossing religious movie until 2004's The Passion of the Christ. Wow. No controversy surrounding that one. <laughs> and it was Cecil Billy DeMille's final film before dying, a remake of his own silent film. And he was the oldest working director in Hollywood at the time at 75. Many background scenes were shot on location in Egypt, despite the action being filmed on sound stages. 
The script contained 380 pages with 70 speaking parts. The film cost $13 million to make. Jeez. For AFI 100 Years, top 10, top 10 list for the epic films, it was number 10. AFI 100 Years, 100 Cheers, number 79. And AFI 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, Moses is number 43. <laughs> 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 I just... I, I love that list the most because I love to think about how they rank different heroes and Moses only getting 43. <laughs> he let and then all these Jewish people out of Egypt and he only got 43. I almost wonder if there's probably not, but I almost wonder if like this DeMille missing on the nomination had anything to do with him winning best picture four years earlier for the greatest show on earth, which is definitely controversial. And so maybe, I don't know, but he definitely should have been nominated. So well, by sure. the time this posted, people can see the Ten Commandments because it's going to be on TV. Yeah. And after watching the greatest show on earth, oof, <laughs> this movie really should have been his win. <laughs> yeah. For picture and possibly director. We'll see. Okay, any of final thoughts on the Ten Commandments? If you want to watch a condensed version, The Prince of Egypt is amazing. Yeah. Definitely but this movie is also pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And, and compared to The King and I, historically accurate, I will say that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, historically accurate in the sense that he like consulted with rabbis and religious scholars as long as as well as like books written by yeah professors and stuff of religious studies did his research yeah yeah very good okay our final nominee and our winner and the oscar ghost oh i'm sorry this is the 50s and the winner is (laughs) (laughs) around the world in 80 days Okay, so Around the World in 80 Days. Also going for that epic sense in its scale. It is a, you know, a worldwide travel adventure film. It's about an Englishman named Phileas Fogg who um, makes a bet that he can travel, circumnavigate the world in 80 days. And so he starts off in this hot air balloon with his assistant, um, who he hired like the day before and it's just like, Hey, you want to go around the world in eight days? And like, Oh yeah, sure. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. So, uh, he, he goes around the globe traveling to different countries and, um, getting into all sorts of trouble and rescuing a princess, Shirley MacLaine, uh, whitewash role there once again. And, yeah he makes it i mean i (laughs) i'm not spoiling it because i don't want you to have to sit through this two hour and 55 minute movie because i thought sit through the two hour 2004 disney remake it's funnier no 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 sit through like the 20 ish minute one that they did on house of mouse where it's mickey goofy and donald much faster gets the story through a lot faster perfect 
I can't believe I've seen this movie twice now because of y'all. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Wow. Yeah, this movie's terrible. I mean, like, this is the second time we've covered where the Best Picture winner was not only my least favorite nominee, but my least favorite film of all the movies we watched from this year. Um, I think I watched 16 of them. And so I, I think it's awful. I think that when you have a movie like this, where it's so centered on the, the lead character completing this amazing task, I should be able to feel something for that lead character or about them. Phileas Fogg is the most boring lead character I think I've ever seen in a movie. That might be a bold take, but thoughts. Uh, this is cameo the movie. True. There are, there's so many cameos in it. But yeah, I can understand that Phileas ain't the, like the greatest character. And it's, I don't know. I'm always focused on Contiflis here and Shirley MacLaine because I've seen this twice. I don't remember it though. That's how freaking <laughs> long it feels. The technical aspects of it are really cool though, I think. Like some of it's shot on actual location. But other than that, it does feel long. And this viewing did get to me only because I wasn't feeling it like at all. It's like, oh, okay, 80 days. You could circumnavigate the globe these days. Wait. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. Aged very not well. Yeah. Zay, what do you think? It's, it's just so long. Nothing happens. And when it does something happen, it just feels, I don't know, it just feels like the same thing every time they go to a new place. They're like, oh, there's some, there's some interesting things happening here. All right, we're done. And none of it ever, none of it ever matters to the plot. Yeah. I think that's what frustrated me the fucking most. Like, nothing mattered. And I don't know. And seeing it twice and seeing it the second time, knowing how much I already hate the movie <laughs> really didn't help. And then just being mad that this movie won Best Picture somehow. And to your point, you saw 16 movies and it was your least favorite. I, I have a list of 44 and it's in my bottom five. And the movies under it are complete garbage. <laughs> so it really is they spent a lot of money on a movie that truly does not matter. Yeah. In 1956, the devil worked hard, but Michael Todd worked harder to get this movie. Yeah. I, the DVD I watched had like a big introduction by Robert Osborne about okay. like getting this movie made. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that one too. But yeah, I, I don't know if I mentioned it's directed by Michael Anderson um, and John Farrow, though Farrow is uncredited. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's just things that I, I did like. I mean, not much. Some of the scenery from the balloon flight is pretty cool, I guess. Um, like you said, some of the countries, like the, you know, the colors there are kind of cool. Also, the cowboy, like country speak when they go to the Old West. Like, I'll be a rattlesnake's uncle. Making fun of, like, cowboys speak like that, that was kind of funny for a brief bit. But You know, I just realized that the biggest letdown for me is that this doesn't start out remarkable. It starts out with, like, a trip to the moon. And after that, you would think, like, okay, we're going to go widescreen here, and it's going to start, like, this big grand opening credits. And it's like, nope, Streets of London, and then this gentleman's club, 
Yeah. And I need a bigger reason for why he was doing this. Like, okay, so it's part of some stupid prideful bet. Like that's what we're hinging on here. Like if you're going to do that, at least like give Fogg some characterization or excitement to him about this bet and why he's taking it on because yeah. I, I just can't buy into why I should care about this because of that. Can I read this fun fact that I found? Go for it. So like Michael Todd, who was married to Elizabeth Taylor at the time, and then he died, not because of her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he wanted theaters to show this as if it were a Broadway show, meaning reserve seating, playbills, a souvenir program, and no popcorn or concessions. Like you're gonna sit through this three hour movie with no food or no drink. Wow. And then a year anniversary when this, like a year after it came out, he held a Madison Square party garden, Madison Square garden party. And it flopped because everybody got drunk and out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the souvenir programs did become a thing for a little bit after that in movie theaters. Yeah. But like, they have it. But like, it's this kind of movie that I could see them having a program because there's so many people in this movie. True. Yeah. And I mean, none there's really only maybe four or five people who have substantial roles. And like I said, everybody else is a cameo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that, do you think that's part of the reason it won best picture though? Because it was like presented as this very prestige thing. Like this isn't just a movie. This is like theater and movie put together. Probably. I, yeah. But why not the 10 commandments? It's true. Because it's it's just a bigger production and it made a lot more money. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I read it as like, well, I've read that these movies nominated, they all had to compete with television, which is like at its peak at the time. Mm-hmm. The first golden age. I mean, this is cool because it's like, I, I remember when we talked about King Solomon's Mind back in the 50s, uh, 1950 podcast, where it's a country different than American audiences have ever seen. Because in this, on-location shooting is very nice. There's one scene, I think it's in India, when they're on the back of an elephant. You can definitely tell it's a Cinerama type stuff. But it's like, oh, this is 1950s. I've never seen wild India before. (laughs) I've never seen the ocean. How beautiful, yes. You know, it's one of those situations. Yeah. It did make me sit and wonder here if I would prefer to watch this again or King Solomon's Minds again. <laughs> and I think I have to pick King Solomon's Minds just because it's the shorter one. Yeah, it's shorter. It's shorter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, definitely, I mean, one of the, the worst Best Picture winners I've seen is near the bottom of my list. I like though, that they had Contemplus in this as Passport 2. Yeah, I thought he was fine. I mean, I, I thought he was good. I thought he was well, he kind of like... The, he drew in the Latin American box office. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad has met him. He was a much better character than Phileas Fogg, for sure. Yeah, my dad also references him like every week, I will say. Where did your dad meet him at? Of some place. I don't know. He has a picture in the basement of him and him together. <laughs> like, I'm not shitting you. That's cool. Yeah. But yeah, um, it was, it did win five Oscars. Um, That's too many. Yeah, way too <laughs> many. So tied the King and I again for most wins that night. 
best picture, best adapted screenplay, like wow. Uh, best color cinematography, film editing, and score. It was nominated for three additional. So uh, Michael Anderson for best director, um, best art direction for color film, and best costumes in color film. Yeah, $22 million box office. Again, all those cameo roles, um, you know, Frank Sinatra, Ben, uh, Buster Keaton, all types of people in this. Uh, features the longest closing credit sequence at the time at six minutes and 21 seconds. Wow. Yeah, single largest movie project ever shot in only 75 days. Over 68.8 thousand extras, over 13 countries used with 74,000 costumes either designed, made, or rented. And they did not even get a win for that. Okay. Around the world in 80 days. Best picture winner. But what do we think? Which picture was best? Zay, do you want to give us your rankings? Ooh, here we go. I... So, number five... Around the World in 80 Days. Number four, Friendly Persuasion. Three, The Cain and I. Two, Giant. And number one, The Ten Commandments. By far the worst set of Best Picture nominees I have done with y'all so far. All right. Christian? All right. Number five, I have... This is where we're going to differ. Friendly persuasion. Mm. I don't think I could sit through that again. Number four, around the world in 80 days. I could sit through that again in maybe another 20 years. <laughs> number three, the king and I. And then I had to think about this really, really hard. But number two, I have giant. And number one, I'll agree with Zay, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um... I agree with Zay. We've covered, this will be number 12 of the Best Picture nominees over time, and this is the worst, I think, that we've covered. So number five, Around the World in 80 Days. Number four, Friendly Persuasion. Number three, The King and I. Number two, Giant. And number one, The Ten Commandments. We all agree it should have won Best Picture. Sorry, uh, Christian, Mr. DeVille. Christian texted me a while back and was like, I think all of our number ones are going to be different this time. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I thought Brett would have liked Around the World in 80 Days. <laughs> <laughs> what an indictment of Brett's character. Can you imagine what this podcast would be like if I came in and was like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. And I'm sorry. I, over to I, would have, I would have started screaming at you. <laughs> but yes. So I think it's safe to say the Academy got it wrong in 1957 for the years of night for the films of 1956. You have like a buzzer, like, eh. <laughs> you should throw that in. Good idea. Let me get it right. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is our coverage of the best picture nominees of 1956. Tune in. After a little while, we'll release another episode, which we cover six more films from that year in our 1956 year in review, some films that weren't nominated for Best Picture. And so, as always, thank you for listening um, and keeping up with us as we go along and do these. They're a lot of fun. 
Um, if you could rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen and follow us on all the social media platforms on Letterboxd, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, thanks again to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our music. And yeah, be sure to tune in for our next episode. Zay, any final thoughts from you? Um, in this time of dire... <laughs> I was trying to be serious, but I had nothing on there. I don't know. You're locked up. You don't have anything to do. Watch some old movies for once. There you go. Christian, how about you? Um, yeah. You don't have anything else to do, so listen to us, um, or else. I think if they got to this part, they already were. (laughs) Listen to the next episode, or else. (laughs) (laughs) We will find you. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Adieu.